Well, good morning, church. Hope you're doing great. Go ahead and uh, grab a copy of the scriptures. If you would open them to Mark 13, that would be awesome. I'm going to get uh, some stuff positioned for a second, so take your time. <clears throat> I know it's, uh, your heart wells with joy when you see me bring out the whiteboard. You know, uh, you know we got an interesting text this week uh, if Matt's going to doodle for us. So, hey, if you're, uh, if you're new with us, welcome. My name's Matt. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at TCC. We are uh, venturing into uncharted territory. Mark chapter 13, teaching series called Your Kingdom Come. Question, uh, as we get started this week, why do we do what we do? Why would we gather each week? You see around TCC a good bit, I hope, a mission statement that says uh, that we exist to multiply disciples to God's glory. So that is our goal, that we would make and keep making disciples. Jesus, how do we define disciple? Jesus gives us a really clear metric for defining a disciple. It would be one who loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loves their neighbor as themselves. So our measurable as a church would be we want to see people growing in their love for God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and their love for their neighbor as themselves. And that as they do that, then that would multiply in the lives of other people. So that's why we do what we do. Why do we gather here? This is an important part of that goal that the worship of God, the love of neighbor, would be centered around the teaching of the scriptures. We see this as a valuable and instrumental part in prompting us to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We have attempted over the past uh, month or two to really critique and raise the value and intentionality of what we do when we gather. Now, I don't know if you know, we don't just uh, throw the songs together or the arrangement of the songs or when we do a meet and greet or what we do. Uh, that doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings. Rhett and I get up at 4.30 a.m. and say, ah, oh, this seems good to us. Uh, we actually meet and try to have a plan each week so that there's some intentionality with what, we got, with what we do when we gather. We want to see increasingly this space every Sunday when we gather as a dress rehearsal for the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. We gather, uh, we have started to try to position the word of God at the very front of our service. So God gets the first word. We hear from him and he is the one that calls our gathering to be. And then at the outset of our gathering, we're going to rehearse the early creation, God's creative work, as we extol his character and his worth, and as we remind ourselves that we're created to be in unity with one another. So if you notice the words, the lyrics of our early songs, they're going to be extolling the nature of God, who he is, what he has done, and then oneness with the men and women that we're seated around. Then we're going to rehearse the fall, to remind ourselves that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, hopeless and helpless, separated from God, in need of his grace. We'll sing, sing songs that remind us of that. Some weeks we'll pray prayers that remind us of our deep need for God. Then we're going to turn our attention to the truth of God's word. 
where we then see a remedy to our deplorable state each week. Each week we see God's gracious remedy through Christ to our state of sinfulness, depravity, death. Then, on that back end of the sermon, we're going to sing songs that affirm the redemption that is ours in Christ. These are going to be hope-filled songs where we have been reminded of our sin, we've been reminded of the truth, and then we're brought out of our seats to declare Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. We have hope through the cross of Christ. Some weeks we'll take communion there to remind us of the beautiful redemption of the gospel. And then we're going to end each week sending us out on mission to the world. That is what the redemption that is offered to us through Christ should do. It should prompt us to live radical lives of mission. So we'll end with a song of mission declaring that we're to go to the world and with some announcements for how we as a church are going to be about that in the coming week. What we're hoping is this dress rehearsal of the gospel played out week after week after week burns these routines, these rhythms into your heart, that this isn't just happenstance as we gather, but it's intentional uh, and planned so that we remind ourselves of the glorious gospel of Christ. All right? So let's, uh, with that in mind, let's pray as we turn our attention to the truth of the scriptures this morning. Father, we love you. We are deeply grateful for Christ. Recognize that without your work on our behalf, we are hopeless and helpless, doomed, eternally separated from you. We don't need... uh, Another sermon necessarily to remind us of that. This week has told the tale of our need for you. And so we come with wounds and scars and sin that easily entangles. And we need, by your word, to be reminded uh, that you are on the throne. You are perfectly in charge, perfectly executing your plans and purposes, that you have perfectly through Christ, satisfied the penalty that sin deserved. We need the encouragement that comes from the gathering with friends and family in this room to love and affirm one another. We need to sing songs that remind us of truths that we've perhaps known for 20 or 30 or 40 years. We need that because we're an easily forgetful people. And so this morning as we Uh, turn our attention to your word, we we ask that you would do just that, that you would, by your grace, remind us of things that we perhaps know, bring those uh, to mind very clearly. For those that uh, perhaps hear these truths for the first time, that they would fall on soft soil in our hearts, and that they would bear great fruit. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. So Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. As we've seen through this series, one of the central teachings of Mark's gospel is this idea of the kingdom of God. That is, uh, for most of us, a somewhat foreign phrase because we don't use language like uh, kingdom very often, but I would ask you to consider it in, in this frame. Everyone, people in Christ, people apart from Christ, all people have a picture of, of the good life. 
These pictures uh, may differ from a quiet retirement on a beach to a high-rise inner-city loft, from loving intimacy with family and friends to a life free from pain of disease and death, from meaningful work that makes a difference in the world to a life free of guilt and shame from hidden sin. All of us, in our own unique ways, have a picture of what the good life is meant to embody. This idea of the good life was packed, it was loaded in to the Jewish language of the kingdom. The kingdom of God was thought to be this good life. The kingdom was life as it was meant to be. They knew, and as we've been reminded this morning, we likewise know that God originally established a kingdom. He created all things, and he created all things for his glory. And this early establishment of the kingdom on earth was marked by peace and wholeness and joy universally. Think with me. With God, the kingdom of God in the original garden was marked by relational intimacy. People walked with God in the cool of the garden. With one another, husband and wife were created to partner together to rule and reign over God's good creation to multiply image-bearing worshipers over the face of the earth. With the world, plant and animal kingdom would be harnessed to bring about new, unique, and beautiful ways to bring glory to God. And with oneself, Adam and Eve would not have to live with the shame or guilt that comes from rebellion from God. So the original creation design was the embodiment of the good life. Things were right with God, with one another, with the world, and with oneself. The problem is, as we know, that the servants in this kingdom usurped the kingdom and tried to do things their own way. As a result, all things get broken, distorted, or misdirected. With God, they're separated from a holy God who would not allow sin into his presence. With one another, where relationships were meant to be a strategic tool to harness and advance the glory of God, they would now be marked by friction and infighting. With the world, where they were meant to find new and unique ways to harness creation to bring glory to God, they would now find thorns and sweat. And with oneself, now instead of being free to walk in the garden, In the cool of the day, they would hide, blame others, and cower under sin, attempting to cover for their shame. This was life in the broken kingdom. And from this point forward, this contrast between the kingdom distorted and the kingdom that God had established would mark all humanity. We might say it this way, that into all creation was this longing to go home. This longing for a return to the way things were supposed to be. Much like the nostalgia that may mark a trip back to your hometown or a journey past the home that you grew up in, all people, fundamental to humanity, is this longing to return to the way things are supposed to be. And whether you talk to a believer or non-believer alike, there is into all of us this reality that things aren't as they're supposed to be. This world is out of joint. Things are broken and distorted. And so, 
built into all creation is good news for how we get back to that good life. Built into all of creation is good news for how we get back to that good life. You'll see it uh, take a walk down a shopping mall, and you will see the gospel of consumerism on display. That my return trip to the good life is marked by spending money that I don't have to create a fake mock-up of who I am, to somehow dull the pain that I'm not the man or woman that I want to be. That somehow consumerism provides for me a way to the good life if I just have that next toy, that next thing. Fundamental to all humanity is how we get back to the good life. This longing was typified by the Old Testament longing for the coming of the kingdom. This is a lengthy introduction to understanding our text this week because the people of God believed that God's Messiah would be the one to usher in that kingdom. He would come, break into a fallen world order, and right everything that sin had had broken. And since the world was ruled by other kingdoms, this kingdom hope was most often expressed by he would have to then overthrow the kingdoms of this world to establish his kingdom. So the coming of the Messiah, the advent of the king, would be marked by this militaristic overthrow of the kingdom and the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. So we might draw it like this. You don't have to be able to see this just just to get the point. We might say that there is, this is the timeline of history, there is this age, and there is the kingdom age, And the Jewish expectation was that between this age, typified by fallen, brokenness, kingdom distortion, and the good life, the kingdom age to come, would be the coming of the Messiah. Okay? So God's Messiah would come, he would usher in his rule and reign, establish the kingdom age on earth, and when he does this, he would then separate God's people from those that were not God's people. This was the hope, this was the expectation. In that kingdom of God would gather people to himself who were his people and separate from himself those who were not his people in judgment. So it's no wonder that by the time we get to this point in Mark's gospel, the disciples begin to ask Jesus about the coming of the kingdom. When's this gonna happen? He was known to be this. Jesus was known to be God's Messiah. So if he is God's Messiah, it seems clear by this point in the gospel that the kingdom's not in place, right? Things are still broken, fractured, and distorted. And not only that, but now the king has started to make hints that he's getting ready to die a horrific death. He's getting ready to go away. So the question, if you were awaiting the Messiah to usher in the kingdom age, would be, when's this going to happen? The Romans are still in place. You're telling us the kingdom has come, but you're getting ready to die. So, an introduction, verse 1 of Mark chapter 13. He came out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Right. So just to set our, our context, Jesus has been in the temple been in and out of the temple at least since chapter 11, teaching those that would listen and condemning the religious hypocrisy that littered the landscape of the people of God. 
These people, the nation of Israel, were created in this age to be an oasis of the kingdom before the kingdom. They were created to be a pocket where God's glory would be uniquely demonstrated among a people, where they would be right with God through the keeping of the law and the sacrificial system, right with one another by the keeping of the horizontal laws, the Old Testament covenant promises that they would be right with one another, that they would uniquely harness the land that God had put them on to bring glory to God. It would be a land flowing with milk and honey. And as a result, they would be right with themselves. They were a pocket, an oasis of the kingdom in this age. But as we've seen through the last several chapters, this has not been the case. And the temple, specifically our topic for this morning, was a symbol of that oasis. It was a symbol of God's covenant with his people. It was a mini garden of Eden, you might say, where God would meet with the people and the people would meet with God. There they would offer sacrifices in an effort to be made right with God and they would worship him rightly. But the temple had had a lackluster history, to say the least. If you've read the Old Testament of your scriptures, you know it was established magnificently under Solomon's reign, but subsequently destroyed. And after several rebuilding efforts, the most significant under Zerubbabel, the temple was still fallen into disrepair by the time of Herod the Great. But when Herod the Great and the Romans took leadership, took authority over the land, the temple, the entire temple area, had been rebuilt. Probably in an effort by Herod the Great to placate the Jews, who were upset over the new Roman leaders, he introduced a massive remodeling and expansion project for the Jewish temple. It started 20 years before the time of Christ and was almost completed in A.D. 64, a couple of images on the screen behind, if you can see. Push this out of the way for a second so you can see. This is uh, reconstruction. Uh, someone with way too much time on their hands. I wrote his name down. Alec Garland, 78, uh, dedicated 33,000 hours to constructing a replica of the ancient temple. Um, yeah. That's funny. Um, so uh, the temple area, not just the temple complex itself, but the temple area um, occupied one-sixth of the area of the city of Jerusalem. Nothing could match the temple in terms of its beauty, architecture, and seeming permanence. As he continues to click through these slides, you can see how dominant the temple is to a city like Jerusalem, this entire temple area all the way out to the outer walls, would have dominated the landscape. Everyone around would have lived consistently in its presence. According to Josephus, the ancient historian, some of the stones in the temple were 37 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. Stones marked by polished limestone with gold trim. It's no wonder that the disciples, after Jesus has been in the temple for a little while, say, look, Jesus, isn't this impressive? Isn't this oasis in the midst of a fallen world stunning? Verse 2, and Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. Thanks, Jesus, right? And the picture this week as I'm reading, I'm thinking of uh, 
Hudson or Corey or Avery coming to me when we're at the beach on vacation after building a sandcastle, right? Dad, this is impressive. This is stunning. It's two-tier. Just, just, just wait a minute. One wave's going to wipe that bad boy out forever, right? This is the idea. Look at this. This is stunning. This is impressive. And Jesus does not mince words. He speaks of total destruction. Not one stone left upon another. Now, thankfully, we're able from this position in history to look back on what Jesus is recounting. Starting in around A.D. 64 to A.D. 70, Josephus, a historian, recounts the destruction that came to the Jewish temple. By A.D. 70, it is recorded that the Romans had so destroyed the temple that you could plow the ground as a field on which the temple once rested. Jesus has already hinted at these realities, claiming that you could say to this mountain, move from here and throw it into the sea and it would go. Faith in God is what mattered most. Jesus told the same thing to the woman at the well in John 4, that true worshipers don't worship in a space, they worship in spirit and in truth. It seems that Jesus has been hinting all along that the temple is to be destroyed. And in the last several chapters, that has gone far beyond a simple hint. That this, this age, is coming to a close. How could Jesus make such a bold claim? He could make such a bold claim because he knew what he was getting ready to do. In Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 11, the contrast is made between what would happen in the temple and what Jesus did on the cross. The writer there says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until the enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we see that what Christ is going to do is going to be the fulfillment of what the temple was meant to embody. It will have no more place because Jesus has fulfilled its purpose. And because of this, then we see verse 3. As he sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So we've got a little bit of time lag at least, a relocation. The Mount of Olives is about 350, 400 feet above the temple area. So you can imagine kind of sitting on a hill overlooking one of those, one of those pictures we saw, looking out over the city. And Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be a sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? So they do what is quite natural. Jesus has just said the temple is going to be destroyed. And they say, okay, Jesus, tell us when. When's that time going to come? And Jesus begins to prophesy to paint a picture of what is to come in the future. These sections of prophecy in the scriptures are some of the most confusing and startling in all of the Bible. I remember as a kid, uh, my grandma lecturing me about the end of the world. I remember vividly sitting in her driveway, putting a letter in the mailbox as she told me I better be ready for Jesus to come back, thinking, man, I so want to play varsity basketball first. <laughs> right? 
And then <laughs> once I got over that immature thought, thinking, just please let me get married, like at least for a week. That's all I want. Let, let me get married for a week, and then you can come back. I don't care about people that are younger than me. Just please let me make it to this point. I was even more confused because in the churches that I grew up in, we had these crazy charts everywhere. Again, the Sunday night, some of you uh, remember these, in the Sunday night services, we walked through for years, it seemed like, the book of Revelation, tracing, and every chart had a dragon on it coming from some weird direction with pointers, and my brain just could not handle that. Jesus is now sitting on top of the Mount of Olives, looking over the temple area, and he is painting for us a picture, for his disciples, a picture of what is to come. And here he is not interested in the dates and the times, but specifically to prepare them for what would lie ahead. And, to make this point clearly, specifically he is answering the question, when will these things be? Which, what are these things? These things are the destruction of the temple that he has just spoken about. So this is where our context in reading the scriptures is really, really important because it's very easy to go through verse 5 on down to verse 11 and 12 and get really whacked out about the end of times. And that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is speaking about at all here in this context. He's answering the disciples' question about when is the temple going to be destroyed? When is this age going to come? The confusion about this passage stems from the contrast by the, of the way in which Jesus knew his kingdom was going to come and the way Jews, nation of Israel, expected the kingdom to come. There are several questions that run together at this point. When's the temple going to be destroyed? When's the Messiah going to return? And when will the age end? These questions, to a good Jew, would all be the same question temple's going to be destroyed, this age is going to end, the kingdom is going to come. But Jesus' understanding of the temple, or of the kingdom, was a bit different. If this was our uh, drawing of the Jewish understanding of the temple, we might augment this with the biblical version of what the kingdom was going to look like. And we might draw, we might draw it something like this. Instead of this age, we would have that age, the age marked by the sacrificial system by the Jewish temple, this age would end, would culminate in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. And specifically, that coming, that inauguration of the kingdom would start with his incarnation, and it would maybe bracket on the other end, Pentecost, the sending of the Spirit. So the incarnation of the Pentecost, this age would come to a close, and we would be introduced to, perhaps we would say, the kingdom inaugurated. I don't know how to spell inaugurated, so we'll just put the kingdom there. But Jesus' understanding of the temple expected and anticipated a stage of human history that Jews did not expect, and that we now know to be true. It anticipated a length of time between this and the kingdom fully being established. So we might say that the, we know, because of the teaching of the scripture, that Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, the kingdom will be fully perfected. The kingdom will be perfected. And at that point, when the king returns, 
then we have the things happen that the Jews would have expected, expected to happen when the kingdom is here. No more tears. No more war. The separation, the clear separation of God's people from those that are not God's people. That will all happen over here after he returns. But Jesus knew that we have this age. This age that would be marked, that would end with the things that are spoken of in this text, the closing of the age marked by the closing of the temple, that would then introduce a period of between the times where we would have God's people, those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ, living together. Where we would have glimpses of the kingdom breaking in, but we would have a lot of tension that the kingdom is not fully established. So we would have glimpses, the image I've used before is a sun on a cloudy day breaking through the clouds, but it would not be fully perfected. This is what Jesus knows. And so in this chapter, Jesus is going to detail the things that will, will happen, both in the near future here and in the far future here. And this is what makes this chapter really, really challenging. I would suggest to you that what we see in the first 13 chapters are specifically speaking of the near future. What's going to happen to close this age here? And then we're going to get this opening up. Uh, one of my favorite authors uses the, uh, the image of uh, window blind. Stood a, a window blind that maybe is at a 45 degree tilt. And if you're standing looking on at it, you can't see anything. Looks like the window's closed, but sit down and look up through the 45-degree tilt, and you can see all that's going on outside. Uh, James K. Smith talks about prophecy. Jesus images that way. It positions us to see something that's outside that perhaps we've been missing. Okay? So that's what, that's what this chapter functions as for me. So he answers the question, what's going to happen? What are the signs that are going to mark the end of this age? Verse 5. Jesus begins to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for the they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand with governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. So, again, what we have here are not predictive marks. This is not designed to create for us a timeline. This famine happens, this earthquake happens, and then we know this is going to happen. But rather, they show that Jesus was fully aware of what was to come. And he says, these are the kind of things that will happen before the end of this age. False prophets will come, number one, saying, I am he, or specifically, I am. The bridge text in verse 14 through 23, this fascinating abomination of desolation that we'll have the joy of talking about next week, introduces this even more specifically, that there will be those that will rise up claiming to be kingdom leaders and rulers. And when this happens, the people are told to run. 
They are to, to flee. We see images of the destruction of the temple. You can see these behind me. Uh, in AD 70, recounting of what the city would have looked like, those that would have left in the wake of what destruction was to come. There would also, in the time leading up, be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines, and persecution, specifically before religious leaders and secular authorities. You can imagine what great encouragement this is to the apostles in the first few chapters of, the, uh, of Acts, right? As they're thinking about Jesus' words, this was surely going to happen before the end of this age. He says that these things will only be birth pains of the Messiah. They would demonstrate for us that creation is broken and is fractured. Paul says in Romans 8 that creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So, before the close of the age, we would see this groaning typified in destruction, persecution, earthquakes, wars, famines. And this would mark for us the close of this age. The question is, why then, if my premise is correct, why, why does this matter to us? We're not the nation of Israel, and we are certainly living on the other side of the close of the temple age. Though we do now very clearly live in this age, the between the times, with still a promise of another close coming, this close embodying much of the Jewish hope, the longing, that the Messiah would come back and he would restore on earth as it is in heaven all things. Four quick points of application. Why this text matters to us. Number one, Mark 13, 1-13 demonstrates the sovereign control of God over all of human history. Nothing catches him by surprise. 2,000 years later, many of the same things are true. The birth pains are still present. Clearly, what we have seen in history since has not been a steady ascent of the kingdom. The kingdom functions now, to use Jesus' words, like a, a mustard seed or like yeast. It's small. Some places more present than others. But it's growing, and it will continue to grow. And because the kingdom is at work, and because God is in control, we can do what Jesus exhorts in John 14. Let not our hearts be troubled. As we live between the times, recognizing that Jesus is in sovereign control of all of history, we can be encouraged that we can trust him, that he is still in control. Hope in a sovereign God who is perfectly executing his plans, both in the closing of the temple age 
and the coming of the Messiah helps us avoid being rattled by life in a fallen world. And friends, this is great encouragement for us. I wrote in my notes as we watch the TV news. I don't think anybody watches the news except my wife. I think she's, maybe there's a couple of heads body. So as you uh, Twitter feed your TV news or unfortunately Facebook secondhand your make-believe news, this allows us as Christians who trust in God's sovereign control over human history to not grow rattled by the things that we are fed a steady diet of in our world. Of all things that should mark the life of a believer, it is a steady and fixed hope that even though things are broken and distorted and seem drastically out of whack, God is in control. ISIS, Ebola, whatever you want to put in that blank is not in control. It will not thwart God's purposes. So as a result, in the same way you tell a Jew the temple is going to be destroyed, you're going to be able to plow that ground. They would have said, no way, I'm done. Hopeless. You don't have to stare in the face of those things and be rattled. This is the great hope of God's people. He is in control. He's perfectly executing his plans. We do not have to live as woe is me Christians. And I would encourage you to watch how much you feed into that by the things you talk about, post online, comment on. Would you use the opportunities that God gives you for mission to speak to the fact that even though life seems really broken and out of control, I have faith in a sovereign God who's perfectly executing his plans, and those will not be thwarted. That should be the perspective that outsiders have on the people of God. They have a fixedness to them. They don't get rattled so easy. That should be the calling card of God's church. Secondly, it reminds us of the promised advance of the gospel in the meantime. It reminds us of the promised advance of the gospel in the meantime. Look at verse 10. The gospel must first be preached or proclaimed to the nations. That reads like an exhortation to us. It's a promise in the scriptures. The gospel will be preached to the nations. God knew that the close of this age was instrumental in expanding the gospel to the Gentiles. This was the plan of God, that the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations in the very same way that Matthew 28 tells us that the gospel is to be proclaimed to the nations in the meantime. That we live in an age, that, so rather than standing around waiting for who knows what in terms of future prophecy, we should, as Christians, get busy spreading the, news of the, good, the good news of the gospel. This stands as an encouragement to us to be focused on not predictive timelines of when things are going to end, but to be about the work that Jesus deemed important while he lived among us. It's hard for us to imagine the close of this age in the same way that it was hard for a Jew to imagine the close of this age. And if it's hard for us to imagine the close of this age, Imagine what it's like for those who are apart from Christ. 
I, I grew up, um, and most of the gospel presentations that I learned as a child revolved around the question, do you know what's going to happen to you when you die? One of the shifts in our culture most recently is the majority of a younger generation, that question doesn't even make sense. They simply don't think about it. What's going to happen when I die? I don't know. Who cares? Today is what matters. So things like, for example, things like this week, we'll do a fall festival here on Friday night. Have jump toys and games set up and candy to give away. And the question is, why? Like, why would, we do, why would we do something like that? Is it just because my kids need a place to go on Friday night? Or because they don't have enough candy? <laughs> no, right? We do those kind of things because we live in a world where there are thousands of people who go through their lives every day giving no thought to the fact that this age is coming to a close. And what appears to be a mixed bag now will one day, those who are in Christ and those who are not, one day all that they see, the gospel of consumerism, the gospel of whatever, all that's going to end and they're going to stand before King Jesus and give an account. So we do things like the Fall Festival to leverage our opportunity to say to a lost world, those who are apart from Christ, Hey, there's something you need to hear. There's better good news than the mall has to offer or your job has to offer. There's good news found in Christ. Thirdly, it reassures us of the Spirit's help. This is such a good word for us between the times. Verse 11 the encouragement given to the original disciples, when they bring you to trial and deliver you, don't be anxious beforehand for what you will say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but it's the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against his parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated for all by my namesake. So in the, in the meantime in what I would say is the crash site between the kingdom that is destroying and the kingdom that is being established, we are reminded that the Spirit will help. The role of the Spirit to give us words to speak, give us wisdom for how to live in this between the times. And then lastly, the end of that verse, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The last reminder this text has for us is it exhorts us to persevere. Much like the nation of Israel, we live in an age that is promised to come to a close. And this age is frustrating, it's toilsome, it's painful. And so throughout, we have 19 commands that Jesus gives in this one chapter. The focus on the end times, whatever you do, that, do with that, is not meant to be predictive, but it's meant to give you tools for how to live now. So he says, watch out. Don't be led astray. Be on your guard. Those who endure to the end prove to be God's people. Patient 
perseverance proves salvation. That patient perseverance in the between the times proves that we are God's people. Or it proves that we're not. And so, if you are here this morning, my prayer for you for Mark 13 is that this text would be an encouragement to you, that it would bring hope to a heart that is easily rattled. And if you are here this morning and you are not in Christ, my exhortation to you is turn from your sins and trust in Christ. Matthew 3, Jesus begins the incarnation, the inauguration of this kingdom age, saying this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, or is at hand. This is the beautiful thing about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God made the first move. It came to a fallen and broken and fractured world. And so he says, enter. Like friends, we have a gospel that the local mall or your job or your marriage will never provide. You can, by faith, trust in Christ and enter the kingdom now in anticipation for entering the kingdom fully. And so by faith, that which is broken and distorted can be redirected to Christ. Your marriage that is broken and falling apart can be redirected to Christ, and it can be a picture of Christ's love for the church. Your health, your career can be a tool that God leverages to redirect to Christ, to give evidence to what is to come. So if you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus, let me invite you to the only good news there truly is. Each week as we gather, I introduce this morning's sermon by saying we wanted to up the role, that, the intentionality with which we operate each Sunday. Another of those is we want to consistently encourage you. If you are here and your life has fallen apart, you feel like, I don't really know how I got there or why I'm there, but I need a relationship with God. We want to be available and accessible to you. So to do that, you will see uh, pastors stationed at the front. We're not going to stand down front and invite you to come down front and talk to us. We'll be off to the sides so you can move as you're comfortable moving. Come. We would love to sit down and talk with you, to pray with you, to encourage you. We'd also love for you to do that with one another. So as you're here and you're thinking, man, I, I don't know Christ, but I want to, perhaps the best person for you to talk to is not the pastor, but it's to talk to a small group leader or a friend sitting next to you. Odds are, if you're here and you're far from the Lord, you got drugged into this building by someone. They love you and they are praying for you. And they would be overjoyed by an opportunity to talk to you about what it means to enter God's kingdom now. So as I pray, I encourage you to pray. Then we're going to stand and sing and move and pray together in response to God's word this morning. Let's pray.
Father, we ask that you would use uh, your word in our lives uh, instrumentally to, to remind us of the hope that is ours in Christ. That the timeline of human history, your sovereign control, your perfect execution of your plan would serve as an encouragement to us that you would mark your people by a firm trust in you. And we're reminded this morning that in the meantime, in this age, you are gathering a people to yourself, calling kingdom citizens to enter. And so would you, in your kindness, continue that work here today? Would you draw men and women to yourself? Would you bring salvation to those who are far from you? And would you allow this church to be a sign, a foretaste of your kingdom between the ages as we long for and await your ultimate return? We pray to you and we talk to you because we actually believe you hear us and you can do something about it. You're big enough to be in control of when temples are destroyed and wars are fought. You're certainly big enough to orchestrate the events and circumstances of our lives. You're big enough to break and shatter cold hearts. Awaken us from passivity, from apathy. You're big enough to do all those things. And so we ask that in your kindness you would so that your kingdom would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We ask that for Christ's sake.